The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. A reading from Luke chapter 9 verses 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. We are really glad to see you this morning, especially if you are visiting or a guest. Welcome. Glad to have you with us this morning. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And for the last few weeks, we have been looking at passages where Jesus has done signs of power. He's done miracles. He's calmed a storm that threatened to kill him and his disciples. He's healed a man possessed by many demons. He's healed a woman with a seemingly incurable chronic illness. And he's even raised a little girl from the dead. And a consistent theme throughout those passages is the theme of response. We've been highlighting this over the past few weeks. How do people respond to Jesus? How do they respond to Jesus, his message, and his works? In fact, there has been a recurring question in these chapters, one that's actually been explicitly in the text over and over again. His disciples ask it in Luke 8.25, after Jesus calms the storm, they say, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And Herod himself, the, the Roman ruler, asks it in Luke 9, 9, after word gets back to him about all that Jesus is doing. He says, who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is this? Who is this? And in our passage, that question comes up again, but this time it's from the mouth of Jesus himself. And it's directed at his disciples who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You've heard what I have to say. You see what I've come to do. Who do you say that I am? Our roadmap this morning, you can see our outline printed in your bulletin. 
We'll look at verses 18 through 20. First of all, that question, a crucial question for everybody. Who is Jesus? And then secondly, in verses 21 through 22, a strong warning to confused followers. We're going to see that Jesus' plan for redemption looks very different than his disciples and from ours. And finally, in verses 23 through 27, a sobering call to true followers. Following Jesus involves us denying ourselves, but that denial we're going to see brings true life. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me pray for us. We'll ask God to bless our time and his word together by sending his Holy Spirit among us. Let's pray together. Father, your word is no empty word. It is no vain word. It is our very life. It does not return to you void, but accomplishes every purpose that you have for it. And so we ask for you to keep that promise this morning. Would you have your way with us this morning? Give us ears to hear and hearts to know you. Pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, many of you are familiar with the setup of the game show Family Feud. Do you remember that? Game shows, I mean, it feels like those are falling out of style at this point. But do you remember Family Feud, the general setup, right? Contestants are asked to guess how 100 people responded to various survey questions. And the trick of the show is that you're trying to guess not necessarily what the right answer is, but what most people think the right answer is. And in some instances, those are very different things, right? How would most people answer this question. For instance, in 2012, contestants were asked to provide the top answers to the following survey question. When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? We think the answer to that is. Survey says, right, what would number one be? In first place, 81 people said Elvis Presley. Try being from Tupelo where Elvis is born. I, I respect that. I understand that. In second place with seven people, God or Jesus, they said in second place. Presumably all seven were pastors or Christian nerds of some kind. Came up with that answer. Two people said Burger King. The Burger King. May have just been hungry. What word comes to mind for you when you think about who Jesus is? When we address this question, when, we, when this question comes up that Jesus asks the disciples in this passage, who do you say that I am? How do you answer that question? What does come to mind for you? Let's go back to verses 18 through 20 and we'll see how some people are answering that question and then specifically how the disciples are answering that question. Just by way of context, we've just come off the feeding of the 5,000 and as we often see him doing in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is praying. Luke shows us over and over again that Jesus spends time praying, not just when he's weak from hunger or being tempted by Satan as he was back in chapter 4, or just on the night before he's about to die when he's sweating blood, that he's, he's in such agony about what's to come. No, Luke shows us that Jesus is always praying. He's always praying. After several great and mighty works in the last few chapters, we might think of Jesus at this point as he's at the height of his powers in the Gospel of Luke. There have been some big things happening. And so it's important, it's significant that we find him praying. That he is constantly, even in moments of strength, 
relying on his heavenly father, communing with him in good times and in hard, in weakness and in strength. Jesus is constantly carving out time to be with his father in prayer. We don't have time to camp out there, but just how much more significant is prayer for us? If Jesus did it, if Jesus was constantly doing, how much more ought we to be spending time in prayer with our father? Luke tells us that he's alone, but he's not alone for very long because Luke doesn't even finish the sentence before disciples were with him. They were with him, and he asks them a question in light of everything that's been happening. All the signs that they've seen over the past few chapters as we've been looking at them, in light of all of that, who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds have kind of been this background character as Jesus has been at work, and so he asked the disciples, what are they saying? What are they saying about me? And in verse 19, they tell him, they think that you're one of the great prophets, maybe even one who's come back from the dead, like John the Baptist or Elijah. And it's not necessarily incorrect, but it's not the full story, is it? Because Jesus turns the question on them. He says, but what about you? And he's not just asking it, even though Peter's the one who answers, Jesus is asking it to all of them. Who do y'all say that I am? It's a crucial question that everyone has to answer. Who is Jesus? Crowds give one answer. Great prophet and a teacher, which again, not necessarily wrong, just incomplete. It's not the full story. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am, in verse 20, he's inviting the disciples to fill in the rest of the picture. And they get the answer right. Peter answers on behalf of all of them. He says, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Christ is a word that just means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, various prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil as when they were set apart for their office, for their job. They were consecrated to those offices. But throughout the course of Old Testament his history, that term began to develop. And the prophets began to speak of a coming king, one that was going to sit on the throne of David, who would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And by the time Jesus comes along, the Jewish people are waiting expectantly. They are waiting for this king to come in, to restore God's kingdom in Israel and in the whole world. And Peter is saying, that's who you are, Jesus. You're the king. You're the one we've been waiting on. And he's right. Jesus is that. And then Jesus says something very interesting to Peter and all the disciples. What does he say to them? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. Why would Jesus do that? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But before we move on, I just want to invite us to reflect on the question that Jesus asked his disciples, the one we've been talking about already. Who do you say that I am? Who do you, who do I say that Jesus is? Is he simply a great teacher? Is he simply a helpful voice for those of us trying to live good moral lives? Is Jesus an important part of our well-rounded lives? Or is he king? Is he king of the universe? Is he king of your life? The question that I've been uh, wrestling with as I was getting ready, it was kind of haunting this week as I was working on the sermon. If you followed me around for a week and watched how I spent my time, watched how I spent my money, if you listened to what I said, would you know that I believe Jesus is king? 
If you followed me around and you listened and watched me, would you know that I believe that Jesus is king? It's one thing for me to say it up here, right? That's what y'all pay me for. It's a different thing out there in the world. What would my life really say? What would yours say? Would your life say that Jesus is king? Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter answers for the disciples. He says, the Christ of God. And Jesus, in effect, says, yes, tell nobody. Which brings us to this strong warning to what have to be confused followers. Look back at verses 21 and 22 with me. Why does Jesus tell the disciples not to tell anyone? Isn't like that the whole plan? Tell everybody, go tell it on the mount. Isn't that what we're doing? Why would he tell them not to tell anyone? And it is the plan, but they are not ready to do that yet because they do not fully get it. They don't get what it fully means that Jesus is the Christ and the Messiah, and they certainly don't get what it's actually going to look like. Peter's answer is better than the crowd's answer, but they still don't get the full implications of that. And we know that because of what Jesus says to them in verse 22. Look back there. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus begins to explain to them what's coming in his ministry. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. And then the third day, he's going to be raised again. Why is Jesus getting into that right now? Why is he unpacking all of that for them? And I think it's because they have a faulty conception of what it means for him to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, the anointed one. They do not get what it's actually going to involve, what it is really going to look like. They have a very different conception of what it looks like for Jesus to be king. It's very clear throughout the four Gospels that the disciples are often thinking of Jesus' role primarily in political terms. Jesus is the king, which means he's about to deal with Caesar and these Roman occupiers who have taken over our homeland. And he's about to kick them out and deal with them. He's going to be victorious in a very specific way. And Jesus shows them, I will be victorious, but it's not going to look like that. It will be through my suffering and death. This is going to look different than you expect. In fact, my winning is going to look like losing. It is going to look like losing to you. I think we give the disciples a, a hard time for being thick-headed, right? As you're reading the Gospels, you can often be like, good grief, when are these guys going to get it? Like, when are they going to get it together and actually start following Jesus and listening to him? But actually, on this point, I think I'm sympathetic with them. I think I would have thought the same thing. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. You have seen Jesus calm a storm. You have seen him win showdowns with demons. Is it that crazy to think about your Roman occupiers, the people who have taken your homeland from you? Is it that crazy to look at what Jesus has done and think, wonder what he's going to do with that? Like they haven't seen him shoot lightning out of his fingertips, but you got to wonder, right? Like they're like, I don't know. Maybe he could do it. And Jesus is very clear, it is not going to look like that. And so he tells the disciples not to tell anyone because they do not yet understand what his Messiahship will really look like. Once they do, once they get it, once they have seen everything he's just predicted here, once they've seen him crucified and risen, then they will be ready. And they are. That's what the book of Acts tells us as Luke goes on to tell us the story of the early church. Then they get it, and they're ready to proclaim and to talk about it.
before we move on, it's just worth noting, I mean, you don't have to be a big student of church history to know that we have spent a lot of time missing this like the disciples do. We've spent a lot of the last 2,000 years forgetting that Jesus and the way, his way of redemption, his plan of redemption looks differently than what we want. We want winning to look like winning, right? We're with the disciples. Jesus, it's time to conquer, right? Kick the bums out. And Jesus is reminding us over and over again, no, winning is going to look like losing. Life is going to come out of death. Goodness out of suffering. Jesus tells us that his winning is going to look like losing. And if we want to follow him, it is going to be the same for us. And that's where he goes in verses 23 through through, uh, 27, excuse me. He calls his followers to suffer as well, to deny themselves in a way that will bring them true life. As if to drive this point home, Jesus tells the disciples, if you want to follow me, you will have to deny yourself. You will have to daily take up your cross. Now that language is so familiar to us that it can go in one ear and out the other, right? We often joke about our cross, our crosses to bear. This is my cross to bear. We're usually talking about something not that big, right? So I want to slow down for a second and think about what is this, what does Jesus really mean? What does he mean when he's talking about denying ourselves and bearing our cross? What is he really saying? And I just have to give a shout out really quick to one of our own, Christy Graham Brell, actually wrote an excellent article on this for the Gospel Coalition that was very helpful for me in my preparation this week. I told her that I was going to give her uh, a shout out because she did excellent work on this text. So if you want to study this more deeply, you should go Google that uh, later today because I'm ripping her stuff here. This is called uh, plagiarism. We think of denying ourselves often in terms of things, right? Things or desires. Like this morning, I denied myself a second donut, right? Did not deny myself the first one. I denied myself a second donut. When we think of Jesus saying, deny yourself, that's that's where we tend to go. Deny yourself stuff. But this word here, that word for denying, is the same word that's going to be used about Peter at the end of this gospel. When Peter denies Jesus three times. What does it mean that Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus? He abandoned him. He disowned him. So when Jesus invites us to deny ourselves, that is what he has in view. Abandon your allegiance to yourself. Abandon your allegiance to yourself as the most important thing. So that's deny yourself. What about taking up your cross? We have to remember where we are in the story at this point, right? This Jesus has not died on the cross yet. Even though he keeps telling the disciples that he's going to die, they actually don't get this yet. They have not figured it out. So what would they have heard when Jesus says, take up your cross? The Romans often made those who were condemned to die, those whom they were going to crucify, they had to carry the cross beam. They had to carry it to the place where they were going to be executed. And it visualized for everybody as they carried that, I mean, they're going to make Jesus do this, right? As they make him do that, it visualizes his humility before the Roman state. It demonstrates to everybody, he is so thoroughly conquered. He is so thoroughly submissive that he has to carry the instrument of his own death. That's how much he has lost. I mean, it might as well be a giant banner saying, I lost. 
That's what the Romans are doing. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow, it, and follow me, he's saying, lose. Lose to me. Take up your cross and follow me. Now you combine those two things. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Disown yourself and lose to me. That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? Deny myself, disown myself, and lose. But do not miss where Jesus goes next. Do not miss where he goes next in verse 24, because Jesus tells us that that this radical self-denial brings life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is the radical, upside-down calculus of the kingdom. If you disown yourself and lose to Jesus, you'll find yourself and win. When we lose our lives for his sake, we find them. But the inverse is also true. Jesus goes on to unpack this further. When we try to save our lives, we will lose it. So what does that look like? What does trying to save our life in such a way that we lose it actually look like? And Jesus gives us the answer in verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So if you try to save your life, you lose it. And that happens when you're trying to gain the whole world. You want to lose your life, try to gain the whole world or the things of the world. The opposite of denying yourself or losing your life for Jesus' sake is trying to gain the world and what the world has to offer. And I think Jesus is actually using profit and loss language intentionally. He's using financial language intentionally because that is one of the places where all of us feel the pull of the world so strongly. Money. Stuff. And Jesus says, what good will it do us to have everything money can buy and lose our souls. But it's not just about money. It's everything that the world has to offer. What good will it do to have the career or the accolades or the power and lose our souls? Why is it that trying to gain the world leads to losing our souls? Why does that happen? And the connection seems to be in the next verse, in verse 26. All of this is connected verse by verse. Jesus says, trying to gain the whole world will inevitably require you at some point to be ashamed of Jesus. That's where he goes next. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Trying to gain the whole world inevitably means that at some point you will have to deny Jesus. As Jesus says elsewhere, no one can serve two masters. Ultimately, you're going to love one or hate the other. Think back to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness back in chapter 4. What did Satan offer Jesus in the second temptation? He offered him all the kingdoms of this world. You can gain the whole world, Jesus, if you just do what? Just bow the knee. If you bow the knee to me, you can have it all. Deny God. And Jesus is saying in our passage that a parallel choice is before us. You might get the world and everything it has to offer, but you will deny Jesus in the process. You will lose yourself 
And on the day when Jesus comes in his glory, he will deny you because you have denied him. Or you can take up your cross. You can deny yourself and you can follow him. And in so doing, find everything you were actually looking for when you were trying to gain the world. That is the upside down calculus of the kingdom. Everything you're looking for over here, if you will deny yourself and die, you will actually find what your heart is truly after in Jesus and in his kingdom. You will find everlasting life. Why should we take up our crosses and follow him? Because of the very thing he said in verse 22, as we get ready to come to the Lord's table. He is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he will be raised. Why should you deny yourself and lose to Jesus? Because he is going to lose for you. He is literally going to take up a cross and be executed on it for you and for me. It's what this table points us to. His body broken, his blood shed for you. He dies for us and invites us to come and die with him. That in that death, we might find real life. If you go after life on its own, you will lose it. But if you will deny yourself and come and die, you will find it in him. As we close, verse 27 is just a mysterious ending to this. I was almost not going to talk about it, but I think it actually ties in with everything that we've just been saying. It's a mysterious ending of this passage. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about seeing the kingdom of God? Lots of different opinions here. It's possible that he's talking about his resurrection. I tend to agree with the commentators who say he's talking about what's going to happen in next week's passage on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are going to go up with him and they're going to see Jesus' glory. They're going to see his glory. The glory that he just talked about that we're all going to get to see one day when he comes back, they got to see it. And it was a reminder. They get a taste of the victory that is to come. And so as Jesus calls us to die, keep that vision in mind. As you are taking up your cross and daily following him, it is not, we are not dying just to die. We are dying to live. We are dying that we might truly live. And because he has died first, for us. Amen. Let me pray for us as we come to the table. Father, we thank you that you sent your one and only Son, your beloved, to live the life of obedience and perfection that we could not live, to die the death for sin that we ought to have died. Lord, we, who is sufficient for the task that you've called us to, to take up our cross and to follow you, except inasmuch as we see that you have done it for us. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning for those who are still wrestling with who you are. Would you open their eyes to see that you are, in fact, the king? Would you mold our hearts, Jesus, that we might remember that your redemption looks so different than we want it to look? that your winning will often look like losing, and the life that you call us into is one of suffering, one of taking up our cross. But Lord, also, would you give us that vision of that day when we are going to see you face to face, and we're going to become like you because we'll see you as you are. Lord, would you keep that in front of us as we seek to daily take up our cross and die, 
not simply to die, but that we might live. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That brings us now to the Lord's table. Table We come to feast by faith on Jesus' body and blood, to our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. Just a couple of 